Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. When we take a clear-eyed view of American history and American church history, it's clear that though there are parts of our history where there are Christians, um, importantly so, who were involved in resistance against white supremacy, we see some of this in the abolition era, we see some of this in the black church uh, during the era of Jim Crow and the civil rights era. There is also on the other side not only a history of faithfulness, but also one of vast and devastating failure. Welcome again to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot with Gabe. And Q Ideas' goal, as you just heard, is to stay curious, especially to viewpoints you may have not heard before. To think well, to process through what you've heard or read with an eye on God's Word. And then to advance good, to work for the flourishing of others with a view and a hope to bring people into God's kingdom. And Gabe, for that goal, I love that you lead us in some important conversations. I'm so thankful that you're a part of this conversation today. This is part of something we've been doing this year called the Q Ideas Book Tour, where every month we take a book, we take a topic, we take a big idea, and we put it in the middle of the table, and we say, let's talk about it. Let's better understand our way around this particular complex conversation. And today is no different. We're talking about reparations, a topic that when many people first hear that term, have their own preconceived ideas about it. Well, today, I think those are going to get thrown out the door as we have a conversation about what is the particular call to Christians and the church around the theology of restitution and repair. And we're doing it with Duke Kwan. Duke Kwan is a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's the lead pastor at Grace Meridian Hill, which is a neighborhood congregation in the Grace DC network that builds cross-cultural community in DC. He's been a big part of a lot of public conversations around race, equity, and racial repair in the American church. And he lectures on these topics around the country. So I'm excited for him to be with us, but also Dr. Greg Thompson, who's also been a part of many of our Q Ideas conversations around race. He's a pastor, scholar, artist, and producer whose work focuses on race and equity in the U.S. He serves as executive director of Voices Underground, an initiative to build a national memorial to the Underground Railroad outside of Philadelphia, which what a cool project. He's also a research fellow in African-American heritage at Lincoln University and the visiting theologian for mission at Grace Mosaic Church in Washington, D.C. He's also co-creator of Union, the musical, a soul and hip hop based musical about the 1968 sanitation worker strike. We had a premiere of that two years ago at our Q Ideas event and everybody loved it. It was full of energy. It was just beautiful. And so that's Duke and Greg. And then in addition, we're bringing in Micah Edmondson. Dr. Micah Edmondson is lead pastor of Koinonia, a new congregation planted by Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Previously, Micah served as a founding pastor of New City Fellowship in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Micah was the first African American to receive a PhD at Calvin Theological Seminary, and he's the author of The Power of Unearned Suffering, a book about Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology of suffering. And as we welcome these three in, we're going to have a conversation that goes deep into what is Christian responsibility around the race conversations. 
And it's an important conversation you recorded with Duke, Greg, and Micah. It's a long conversation, so you'll hear part of it this week and more next week here on Q Ideas. So let's listen to the first part of Gabe's conversation with Duke Kwan, Greg Thompson, and Micah Edmondson. I'll start with you. How do you guys define reparations? Well, we define it uh, against the the backdrop of, of white supremacy um, and say that, and we describe white supremacy as theft. And we basically say that reparations is the Christian act of returning those things that have been stolen by white supremacy, whether by restitution by the culpable or restoration by those who are, are not are not culpable, but yet have a moral obligation to to restore other people to wholeness. And Duke, as you guys were concepting this, I know we go back a few years at Q Ideas at our event, you gave this 18-minute talk on reparations, standing ovation. People were, I think, inspired and encouraged at the depth at which you helped us start to see a vision for something that just had never been quite presented in this way. And, And I know now the work that you guys have done on this book and this project uh, is just mammoth. I mean, it's like counted up 422 endnotes, footnotes here. I mean, you guys did the work to go deep into history to try to understand some of these concepts and bring those to light. For you, what what was your inspiration to write this book? Well, I think for both Greg and myself, um, we labor in spaces where we're in relationship with a lot of African-Americans and African-American community. And this is a conversation that's been ongoing really for generations among black Americans. It's really in the non-black space that this is more unfamiliar. So the more that we built relationships, uh, the more that we studied history and black intellectual thought, the more we felt uh, challenged by this work that has such a robust and clear moral logic to it. And then, of course, in seeing the church's responsibility, uh, we feel compelled by our own scriptures and our scriptural heritage to do what we feel God is calling us to do. Uh, It's not something we're making up. It's something that we feel like we're doing out of obedience to our God. Yeah, and we're going to walk through this, and that's why I love having a little more of extended time here in this podcast conversation. In addition to the interview that we did where we talked about this, that's that's part of Q Media, where people can access that and watch that 18-minute conversation. I mean, here we can we can push into some of this a little bit more. We also have Micah Edmondson with us, who's going to join us in a few moments to just give some of his perspectives as an African-American pastor and leader who understands this story and understands what the what what we're up against in this conversation, as well as what the incredible opportunity is in voicing this need. And so I want to start at the beginning for those listening and haven't read the book yet. We're encouraging everybody to get this book, make this your, your read this month to go deep into understanding what Greg and Duke are arguing for here. But I want you guys to help us walk down this path a little bit as you do in the book so well to take us on a journey as to of, of self-discovery, maybe for those who have not thought about this or their immediate reaction to the subject matter of reparations is to reject it because they have some view of it that's based in, in an idea of a government paying back certain people, this whole political side of it. And they're not necessarily thinking through a theological framework. But but I want to begin with you, Greg, because you mentioned it earlier. The, the premise of this book is white supremacy. It's a recognition of a theft that has taken place. Could you describe more clearly what that has been and how you define white supremacy? 
Yeah, sure. So I think it's important to understand, as we argue in the first chapter, that what we do about the the wounds of American racial history is directly correlated to what we think racism is and what we think the, the nature of that racial history is. We say that racism is fundamentally a cultural disorder. That is to say that American racism has infected the entire institutional structure of our social order. And that um, we define that as as white supremacists. Now, we understand, as we say in the book, the complexities of that language for people. But what we mean by that is that whiteness uh, is essentially a racial category. It's a modern invented racial category that did not exist really before the 16th century. And the function of that racial category was to create uh, economic, political, and social advantages, supremacy, really, <laughs> for people that American social order designated to be white, and uh, correlatively to um, to denigrate those that it deemed to be black. And remember, this, this whole notion of whiteness and blackness, it's an invention. And what it led to was a massive extra, multi-generational exercise in theft. And we, de we define that theft in terms of, you know, the theft of, of truth, which is to say it told lies about what it means to be a human being and told lies about the history of this culture, the theft of power, it, it, literal bodily, bodily power, but also institutional and political power, and the theft of wealth by extracting wealth from black communities and also obstructing the attempts of black communities to build wealth for themselves. And we build that out you know, in pretty significant detail in the book. Yeah. So step a little further into that then. So who's, who's categorized as white supremacist? Is it anybody who's white? Is it, it give us a little more information for an audience that's listening where it's the Q audience has been a majority white audience. So talk, talk a little bit about how we should see ourselves in this conversation. Well, uh, thank you for asking that. You know, I think when we talk about white supremacy, there's a tendency, as we say in the book, to imagine like hooded people gathering in horseback in the forest at night or marching through the streets of Charlottesville with torches, you know, Charlottesville where I live. And I think that there's something true about that, but it's a very limited understanding of white supremacy as it actually, uh, in t with respect to what it actually is. What we're describing is a social order. That is white supremacist. That is to say that the political and economic and cultural um, and, I guess, psychological advantages that come to folks because they are deemed to be white. And I think it's important that we understand that we're locating this in a social order. This is not to say that pe certain people are not responsible to one degree or another, but that's not really a primary argument that we're making or that most folks that are writing about white supremacy make. It's that it's embedded in, in, a, in a structure of, of this social order and that all of us, no matter who we are or what color we are, are somehow implicated in and bound up in that system. And that seems to us just to be true. Um, and so we want to we want to get people actually looking at the social order of which they're a part rather than fundamentally asking the question, am I a white supremacist? We think that's an important question, but that's not the first question, because what we're trying to ask is about the neighbor. <laughs> like what happened to the neighbor? What happened to African-Americans in this culture? And if the conversation gets stuck in what does this mean, mean about me and am I a white supremacist and do, and do I think I'm a white supremacist? We can never really yeah. get to the real question that we're asking. Well, that's why I love, Duke, about the way in which you've approached this from the beginning of this conversation is the discussion around repair and a theology of restitution and understanding that biblical concept in the Old Testament through the New Testament starts to create hope for people and creativity and starts to push us towards a place of reimagining a future where we move together 
towards uh, redemption and repair and restoration. So if if we look at it, as, as Greg said, it's, it's a social order. It's just something we're all operating in. And we realize there's a problem. We realize there's brokenness. We don't we don't spend all of our time trying to define whether I'm part of the problem or not part of the problem. We just go, look, there's a problem. And we want to be a part of the solution. How do we start to move forward biblically in how to think about this concept as Christians? How, and how, how might that be a little bit different than how people have heard this conversation when it's only been framed in a political lens or from a government lens? One of the central convictions of this book is that nobody should care about these things as much as Christians. That's not to say that reparations is a uniquely uh, Christian idea or an exclusively Christian idea. But this is, it strikes right at the heart of our sense of vocation, our mission as a people of God. We believe that we are called to be healers of the wounds of the world, especially those that we had a part in uh, making and creating. Uh, so I think it really begins with our sense of the church's mission as a call to love our neighbors, especially our wounded neighbors. It really is that fundamental and that simple. Um, when we live in a world of theft, we are called uh, to restore and to heal the wounds of, of theft. But more specifically, uh, when we take a clear-eyed view of American history and American church history, uh, it's clear that though there are parts of our history where there are Christians, um, importantly so, who were involved in resistance against white supremacy. We see some of this in the abolition era. We see some of this in the black church uh, during the era of Jim Crow and the civil rights era. There is also on the other side, not only a history of faithfulness, uh, but also one of vast and devastating failure. And we need to grapple with that. Uh, the church was the moral cement of this edifice called white supremacy in America. And we need to learn to own that that begins with actually having a truer and more honest view of history and of our church identity across that history. And so out of that sense of conviction, even culpability, responsibility, that too, not only, again, our call to love our neighbors, but also because we're responsible uh, for white supremacist theft uh, corporately across the history of America, we need to do something. We need to be engaged in the work of repair. We also, as Christians, have a rich biblical, scriptural, theological heritage that pulls us in this direction. In other words, uh, we're describing white supremacy as having a, an effect, a, a cultural effect that we can rightly describe as theft. Uh, that means it's a violation of the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, essentially. If you look at what the scripture says about how Christians ought to respond to theft, uh, we find rich and vast resources, the call to restore, uh, the call to make restitution, the call to heal. And we can talk about that in a moment, but uh, this is something that is laid upon the conscience and the heart of American Christians, uh, not only individually, but corporately. The word of God does not let us slip out from under this. Rather, it calls us to embrace it with joy, creativity, with humbled hearts, uh, with weeping and grieving hearts, of course, but it's a call uh, that we must embrace. Yeah, I you know, Gabe, if I could say, uh, um, I think 
One of the easiest ways to think about the, our account of reparations is that it's just the social application of what we teach every six-year-old in the Christian church, which is that when you take something from somebody, you give it back to them. And so that's why we felt like the Christian church has not only a moral responsibility because of you know culpability issues, but also the moral resources to bring to bear on what is a very significant pressing need on behalf of our neighbors. Yeah, and, and I think that six-year-old illustration is good because when you steal something, you confess your sin, you apologize, you give it back, you you ask for forgiveness. Right. There's a process to that that's transformative for both parties involved. What, as you describe restitution, I, I want to get more into that concept. Uh, it's something that has a rich biblical history. And in the book, you guys really go deep into that history and describing, you know, I mean, you had to go pretty far back to 17th century, I think 16th century, some of the writers during that period of time that were laying out some of these theological ideas that maybe in the last couple hundred years haven't been talked about as much. So could you describe for us that rich history? Yeah, it actually goes all the way back to Augustine, um, at least as far as primary sources we have that sort of explicate the importance of making restitution a non-negotiable moral obligation that Christians have in the face of theft. Um, again, it's this idea that we find in Scripture, if you steal something, you do need to repent and confess those sins. Yes, you need to acknowledge them verbally, uh, but you also may not simply hang on to those ill-gotten goods. Stolen things must be returned to the original owners. Um, and if you don't, then you are dwelling in a perpetual theft. It's as if you are stealing it all over again and again and again. You need to give it back. Um, and in fact, it was Augustine and many others after him that confirmed if you don't make restitution when you're obligated to do so, you cannot rightly claim the forgiveness of God. It's a stunning claim that's made, but I think a right one and a biblical uh, one. You're, you're right, Gabe. This is uh, something that we don't talk about much, restitution in the modern church, um, even in ethics classes. Uh, but when you go back a couple of centuries, this is all they were talking about. <laughs> when you were talking about theft and what we're to do with it, you see this again and again in theological expositions of the of the Ten Commandments, specifically the Eighth Commandment. Um, this was the consensus view. Restitution, both individual and corporate, must be made when you are culpable of theft. And so it's not a surprise that a couple centuries ago, Christians who were concerned about the institution of slavery and about white supremacy more broadly, spoke about, taught, called other Christians to make restitution uh, for the enslavement of Africans, uh, called them to make restitution in practical and concrete terms, giving back what is owed to those who have been robbed and plundered. And so even the application, not just the biblical theory, but the application of this theology of restitution was actually promoted and advanced by Christians um, in the 18th century and afterwards. We just aren't aware of that history, and we're trying to bring it back through this book. Yeah, and you leverage uh, throughout Scripture a few different instances. One of the stories uh, is the story of Zacchaeus and the specific way in which Zacchaeus right. moves forward with restitution. Could you describe for us that and its application to this concept? Right. Well, Zacchaeus, of course, is a, a tax collector in the Roman Empire, a, a Jewish man, but he was working for the empire and the common practice of tax collection in that day regularly involved theft. Uh, you charge a surplus, you pocketed it, but they abused that. And so he was an agent in an extractive empire. Um, and so as a thief, 
Therefore, he was no, no, publicly known to, to be a thief. But upon encountering Jesus, his kindness, his friendship, the grace of God through him, uh, it opened wide Zacchaeus's heart voluntarily uh, deciding to follow the Hebrew scriptures. Again, this was not just uh, a spontaneous uh, gesture of goodwill on his part. This was actually him knowing well what the Hebrew scriptures taught, Leviticus 6, Numbers 5, Exodus 21, 22. And he said, I'm going to not only give half of all my possessions to the poor, but I will also return, restore, make restitution to all those who I have stolen from as a tax collector. Um, and there we have in the New Testament the clearest example of restitution, which of course is a doubling down on a uh, reaffirmation of the Old Testament ethic that it continues on in the New Covenant even until today. And of course, the important thing is that Jesus blesses that oath, that pledge that he makes. Jesus uh, honors it and sees it as good. And I think he would do the same if we responded in the same way. And so, Greg, I think in that illustration, as people are listening to that um, biblical basis of something stolen, you give it back. You not only give it back, you, you make restitution. You, you, might, you go beyond even what you took to make it better. It's easy for people to see, oh, well, Zacchaeus committed that sin, so that's why he's responsible to make restitution. But when you get into the conversation around reparations, what we're looking at is a much more historical view of theft and theft that then surpasses down through generations to where now in 2021, you'll have people that will will say, well, I, I had no part in that theft. I didn't participate. I didn't steal anything. How can you hold me to account that I'm responsible to provide restitution. And what do you say to that? Yeah, so I'd say two things. Uh, I think it's an important question, and it's certainly an understandable question. I would say within the Christian ethic of restitution that Duke was just describing, one of the things that's important to understand is that there is a multi-generational dimension to the Christian theology of restitution um, that Duke really outlines in, in this chapter on Zacchaeus and does a great job. And so I think the idea is not just whether I myself was di- was a direct agent, but whether I myself was in some ways either a passive bystander or a subsequent beneficiary. Um, that That is well within the realm of the Christian theology of restitution in ways that we really detail in the book. So basically what I'm saying is general generational distance from atrocity of which I am a beneficiary does not, is not exonerative. And that's in, in the, in a Christian theology of restitution. But the other thing I would say is, is that that restitution is not the only ethic. Uh, it's not the only Christian response to theft. Um, I mean, one of the things we hear often, and this was true in my own family is we never owned slaves. We never participated in this. Why would we, why should we be responsible for this? And I think in order to understand uh, the fullness of the Christian ethic of reparations, we need to look at another story that is about theft. And that is not the Zacchaeus story, but the Good Samaritan story. Because what you have in that, again, this is this is a story about theft. You have a person who came upon a theft that that happened that was not in any way related to their actions. They, the Good Samaritan did not do anything to, to cause this, was not complicit in any way. We have other people who walked by who were also not complicit, but they, um, you know, they ignored it. But what we see is that the Good Samaritan stepped in and gave his resources to restore the bereft person to wholeness and to fullness. And that that's what we call the ethic of restoration. And I think it's important to understand that in the that in, in the development of the Christian theology of reparations that we're making, there are actually two Christian ethical streams 
that are responses to theft that flow into our vision of reparations. The first is restitution, a la Zacchaeus, but the other is restoration in terms of the Good Samaritan. And what that does is it says, whether you yourself are complicit is not fundamentally or finally the question. The question is, what does your neighbor need? And, you know, as we talk about, I think this is deeply important for us to learn to ask the restorationist kind of question because that's what missionaries do. For example, if we went to Rwanda in 1997, you know, after the genocide as Christian missionaries and went in and said, well, I didn't really have anything to do with this genocide. So like, don't look at me. You would be recognized as, as a fool, right? <laughs> it's basically the worst missionary ever. Um, but yet that's the same kind of logic that a lot of white, white Christians, Christians are, are using, using. They're right. to distance themselves from any implication. And we're saying your implication as a directly culpable agent may or may not be true. But if you're a Christ follower, the single example that he gives us of love of neighbor is this Good Samaritan, which is a restorative response to an act of theft. Yeah, Duke, were you going to jump in there? No, I was just hollering an amen, man. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, and boy, it's hard pressing the pause button right there. But there was so much more to this conversation that Gabe recorded, so we'll continue this conversation next time on the show. This past week, Gabe and his team hosted the Culture Summit, the 15th annual Q Conference in Nashville. Maybe you were part of it in person, or maybe you watched virtually. Again, a lot of great talks and breakout sessions. Now, if you weren't able to be part of the summit this year, much of that content will be making its way to the Q Media platform at qideas.org in the coming weeks. And that'll go on top of some of the great content from the 15 years of Q conferences and events. Many talks around key topics such as race and repair, mental health, politics, and technology. They're organized into playlists for easy access. There's also great films from Wind Rider Studios, an exclusive podcast like Gabe and Rebecca Lyons' Rhythms of Life podcast that we featured previously on this show. If you're not a member of the Q Media platform, learn more and get a free trial subscription at qideas.org. Well, I'm Paul Perot. Thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. We hope you join us again next week. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.